Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see you, even if you can't quite see all of me. I'd like to thank uh, Will for his thoughts during communion, this landscape artist and trained preacher. Gets us through the seasons, Jesus does. And then I love the last line of his prayer, we commit to live for him. He opened, Will did, with a comment on the beautiful worship, which was just stunning week after week. This is very uplifting, very encouraging. Gives us strength to carry on and express what's in our hearts. And then Beth's prayer, my goodness. Prayer with every one of these times I've been involved with the congregation. This is now my fifth work with IMP. But uh, prayer is the absolute critical, most important thing that we do. God's engagement and leadership is essential if there is anything that's going to happen in this transition that will move us toward transformation. I'm a I'm, uh, I'm of the age, as we say, and with underlying conditions, as we say, and so I wear a mask. I apologize for that, I guess. I'm hopeful, though. I heard word from Searcy, Arkansas, that faculty are being vaccinated next week. And so maybe, maybe, my, maybe I need to become an adjunct real quick at Harding or Lipscomb will follow suit. If you have your Bibles, if you have your device, would you turn with me to Mark chapter 4, verses 35 and following. It's the storm at sea, and there's two storms at sea in Mark's gospel, and this is the first one, and the one I'd like for us to be the, the essence of our sermon this morning, Mark 4. There's another one in Mark 6. Don't go there. Go to the one in Mark chapter 4, and here's what you'll find. This story. That evening, Jesus said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And so, after dismissing the crowd, they got into a boat and launched out onto the sea. A fierce gale develops, and the waves break over the boat. The boat starts to fill with water. Jesus is asleep in the stern. And so they awoke him saying, teacher, don't you care? We're perishing. So Jesus stands up. He rebukes the wind. He says to the sea, hush, be still. And the wind stills and the sea perfectly calm. And then he turns to his disciples and he says, why are you afraid? Have you no faith? And then they became even more afraid. And they said to one another, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? The title of our little lesson this morning is After the Storm, Who is the Jesus You See? Who is Jesus? I ask and will ask, and have you seen him? I have. I have seen Jesus. 
I saw him on Interstate 75, just north of Detroit. Out of the city, past the suburbs, you'll find the Dixie Baptist Church. Donna and Bill have seen this. Holly and Trace have looked at this. It's a huge-sized portrait of Jesus outside the Dixie Baptist Church, a humongous image of Jesus visible to every passing motorist going north. Jesus is there. He has a Roman nose. He has high cheekbones. He has well-groomed eyebrows. He has deep blue eyes. He is thin-lipped. His hair is light brown, thin strands, shoulder length. He's slender. His skin color is light. And he has this serene, upward, heavenly gaze. He looks to be this Jesus of Scandinavian descent. His name could be Swenson or Knutson, <laughs> with a little brother named Olaf. <laughs> is that Jesus? Or is Jesus better imagined in a statement like this? I'm quoting now. Jesus of Nazareth was a man of illegitimate birth, of a benevolent heart, an enthusiastic mind, who set out without pretensions of divinity but ended up believing in them. So thought our third president, Thomas Jefferson. But more interesting than Jefferson's conclusions and his famously thin Bible was Jefferson's technique. Again, I quote him and listen carefully. Jefferson found the real Jesus by, quote, abstracting what is really his from the rubbish in which it is buried, easily distinguished by its luster from the dross of his biographers, as separable from that as the diamond from the dunghill. Luster and diamond, of course, but dross, rubbish, dunghill, those are inappropriate terms for the context of Jesus' life and the reality of ours. Who is Jesus? Norwegian Jesus, who looks like the painting by, made by Richard Selman in the 1940s? Or is he Jeffersonian Jesus, a diamond extracted from the dross and the dung and the rubbish of life? Who is Jesus? It's the very question that is at the heart of the Gospel of Mark, relentlessly and creatively pursued in the Gospel of Mark, and one in these first couple of weeks of January that are beckoning us here at the Fourth Avenue Church of Christ. Who is Jesus? In Mark's gospel, people are crowding in to see. I mean, loaves and fishes, you can't blame them. In Mark's gospel, people are pushing in, they're jamming doors, they're blocking city entrances, they're intruding on Jesus' private life. Why? He can't even take a meal. Why? He can't get a moment's rest. In Mark's account, the crowds, however, only want to get a glimpse. His family? Oh, his family think he's lost his marbles. And what do the hometown, hometown folk think in Mark's gospel? Who are you talking about? Uh, Jesus? Are uh, you talking about Joseph's son, Jesus? <laughs> yeah. We, I, we have sisters are still here. I knew him when he was a kid. No, I don't believe any of that stuff they say about him, no. But the people, 
who do get up close and personal to Jesus are filled with fear. Who is he? Who is this Jesus? It's not an easy story to tell because it's complicated and it's, and it's nuanced like most good stories are. Mark's tale is indirect. It's always honest. And Mark, the gospel writer, wants us to believe something about Jesus. And he wants us to live like Jesus. Well, Mark's a collector of stories, he is. And he's arranged them like a bouquet. And in this rich array of tales, he has one central question that drives the entire gospel. Who is he? Who is he? Mark's story is indirectly told, but it's certainly well organized. And in the passage for the sermon this morning, Mark has brought together really a collection of four stories to paint his portrait of Jesus. And his portrait of Jesus differs significantly from Richard Selman's, significantly different than Thomas Jefferson's. Take a look at one section of Mark's portrait, The Storm at Sea. It's positioned in a collection of three other stories. The one that follows, Jesus casts out a legion of demons possessing a man, and then he leaves the man whole and clean. In the next story, a 12-year-old daughter of a synagogue official is gravely ill, and she dies while Jesus is on the way to heal her. And when he arrives, he raises her from the dead. And finally, a woman who suffered hemorrhaging for 12 years is cured of her sickness. This is the collage that Mark has brought together, who tells us, shows us really, that Jesus has power over death and power over sickness and power over evil even power over nature. Who is he? That's Mark's all-consuming question. That's his central interest. That's his main concern. But it's not his only concern. He also wants to know how we will respond. I'm so sorry. I apologize. (laughs) I know. I'm sounding so academic. I'm sounding like a professor. And you're probably feeling like you're in a college class. We supposed to take notes on this? Is this going to be on the test? Is the guy going on like this? I know, I sound like a tour guide leading you to the Sea of Galilee. There you have your cell phones taking selfies of yourself with the Sea of Galilee in the background. Wide brim hats to protect you from the Middle Eastern sun. And I stand on the seashore lecturing about storms. Powerful storms would quickly develop, I say. High winds would funnel down the Galilean hills and rush onto the sea, creating great billows. And you nod politely and smile for your camera while we all stand safely on the shore with the blue sea at our back. And if, and if a storm were to arise, we would put our jackets over our heads and we would scamper to shelter worried about our hair, worried about our makeup, hoping there's no moisture that's going to get into our cell phone. (laughs) Oh, our old Sunday school ways are coming back upon us. There we are, seated in our second grade wooden chairs in a semicircle around Sister Mortensen, who has her familiar flannel graph in front of her, 
there's flannel graph Jesus. He's in his white robe. He has his arms under his head. His head is on the pillow at the end of the boat out in the sea. And now Sister Mortensen takes a dark cloud and puts it over the sunshine. And a lightning bolt comes down from that cloud and it strikes near the boat. Oh, we would be afraid, except for we heard that same lesson last year in first grade Sunday school. And we know that Jesus will calm the storm. And now Sister Mortensen peels back the gray cloud to reveal the happy yellow sunshine. And then after class, we sit in church and we pull the hymnal from the back of the pew and we sing that Stamps Baxter classic, Master, the tempest is raging. I perish, I perish, dear master. Oh, hasten to take control. And then in four-part harmony, the chorus strikes up. The wind and the sea will obey thy will. Peace be still, peace be still. Hmm. What I'm saying <laughs> is that our experience with this story has been so flat, so two-dimensional, so predictable, so distant, so remote from our lives. It's like experiencing a terrible blizzard that's happening in Buffalo, New York, while we sit here in beautiful Franklin, Tennessee, watching on our televisions in the safety of our homes with the gas-lit fire warming us. Mildred, just look at that, will you? Oh, it's terrible. Honey, would you bring me another cup of hot cocoa while you're up? Distant. Perhaps if we stop talking about Jesus from two miles away, perhaps if we listen carefully to our real tour guide, who is the gospel writer, Mark, and allow him to move us to the places that he wishes to lead us, then maybe, maybe something different can happen this time. When our story begins, and it really begins in the first verse of Mark chapter 4, Mark takes the trouble to picture Jesus on the sea. Within one verse, Mark 4 verse 1, Jesus, or Mark uses the word sea three times, and the word boat one time, as if the boat is on the sea, sea, sea. And for land lovers like us, the Greek is pretty dramatic. He got into the boat and sat on the sea. And to us, that doesn't sound like bad Greek at all. It sounds exactly how it feels when you step into a boat. This boat is 26 feet long. It's eight feet wide. It's four feet deep. And maybe you could fit a dozen men in there if they all are wearing tags that have an S on it. This isn't a Norwegian cruise ship, in other words. This is a big rowboat that's raised at one end, not much more than a thin slice of wood between you and the seafloor. Step into the boat. Go ahead. One foot in. Oh, steady yourself. Now the other foot in. Hold on to the sides. Now you're stable. Smell that smell. You smell the wet cedar. Do you smell the fish? The sound of water lapping against the boat. All of it is so innocent in verse 1. But by the time our story starts in verse 35, we're out in the middle of the, in the, middle of the sea, and the wind is picked up, 
and the sea is getting choppy, and the sky is growing darker, and now it's completely dark. The sun is covered, the wind is stronger now, the sail snaps, the wind howls, and the air is wet from the sea, and the waves swell, and you hold on, your knuckles are white, the boat rises, and it falls, the boat, the boat rises, and it plunges, and it jars your teeth. Lightning flashes, thunder breaks, it pounds in your chest, it rings in your head. Whisper to yourself, breathe, remember to breathe, breathe in, breathe out. And now you're talking to God, God, if you get me through this, I promise. And the storm is violent now, the wind swirls, the sea opens, and then the sea closes. The boat lists to the right, you feel it's going to capsize. The waves break over the boat, we're taking on water. It's sloshing at your calves. The boat is riding heavy and low. And Andrew and James, who are seasoned sailors, are wide-eyed and they're afraid. And they're yelling. But the wind is yelling louder. And the boat creaks. A sharp, explosive sound. Are we going to break apart? And there, at the back of the boat, is Jesus. He's asleep. He's asleep on a cushion. I tell you, this text reads so differently when you're in the boat than when you're on the shore with your broad-brimmed hat. This isn't dunghill. This isn't rubbish. This isn't dross. This is where we live. This is life. We're in the boat. And there's a storm at sea. And then Jesus stands. And to the sea, he says, be muzzled. And to the wind, he says, hush. Like he said to the demons in the first chapter of Mark, now he says to the sea, hush. He can control evil. He can control nature. Hush. He says, and like a broken animal, the sea kneels and the sea whimpers and then the sea is still. And as great was the storm, now great is the calm. For in the face of death, he will say to the little 12-year-old girl, Talitha kum, which means little girl, arise. And in the despair of sickness, he'll say to the woman that had been hemorrhaging for 12 years, go in peace, my daughter. Your faith has made you well. And in the eye of evil, he will say to the legion of demons that have possessed the man, out! There's a song. There's a song, and I do not know the tune it's a song that maybe will be familiar to some of you who are Bible readers. It's a song of deliverance. We need a choir to sing it or Mark to pick up a tune for us. Jeff has already read the larger portion, and I repeat now the closing lines. For he commanded and raised the storm, which lifted up the waves by the sea. And they cried to Yahweh in their trouble, and he brought them out from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. 
That's not an eyewitness account that occurred the day after in the Judean times. It's not a reflective poem that was written by one of the disciples. It wasn't composed centuries later by some medieval monk. No. In fact, this song was published before Jesus was born. It was in circulation during Jesus' ministry. It would have been very familiar to the disciples when Jesus calmed the sea because it's found in the Old Testament. It's found in the early church's first hymnal, the book of Psalms. And there it is in the 107th chapter. You heard it read a few moments ago. And after what Jesus does, and knowing what that hymn says, the disciples say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the answer to that question for the disciples and for everyone familiar with the Old Testament song, the answer is, this is the Lord. This is Yahweh. This is God Almighty who created heaven and earth in the boat, in the storm. So what are we afraid of? Afraid of the storm? Well, yes. Afraid of deep water? Mm -hmm. Afraid of the pain that might accompany death? Yes. Afraid the marriage will crumble? Afraid the church will split? Afraid of COVID? Afraid of political unrest? Afraid of further violence in our nation's capital and in the capital of our state just a few miles north? Yes. But after the storm, after the storm, when the sun is out and the sea is as smooth as glass, the fear persists. The text says, and they became even more afraid. There's two stages of fear in our story and two stages of fear in our lives. The fact is that sometimes after, after a, the crisis, after the national crisis or the personal crisis or the community's crisis, fear persists. And sometimes belief is difficult. Why is that? What are we afraid of now? Are we afraid that God has lost interest in us? Afraid that like an early morning fog, he's dissipated? Afraid that he walked off stage? Afraid that he's not watching? Afraid that he's asleep? That's what they said during the storm. Someone said, wake him up! Wake him up! And then someone else said to him, don't you care? We're perishing. Are those the questions we're afraid to ask? Maybe for fear, maybe true. Or are we afraid to ask the obvious question, the deeper question? Why the storm in the first place? <laughs> yeah, why'd that have to happen? And while we're at it, why did Jairus' daughter have to die? And why did that woman have to suffer for 12 years? Why? Why'd that happen? Why the storm? Why the cancer? Why the loneliness? Why the pain? Why did he have to leave? Why? Are we afraid to voice our suspicions and our doubts to God? 
But there's another fear, and that's the fear that is clearly articulated in our story. It's the fear after the storm. And here the fear accelerates. After the storm is over, the sky is bright yellow, the sun is bright yellow, and the sky is blue, and the sea is as smooth as glass. They became even more afraid. Now what could they be afraid of? Maybe they are afraid that if Jesus is God, maybe we're afraid that if Jesus is God, we can't domesticate him. We can't put him on a leash like you might your dog. We can't say, here, God. We can't say, sit, God. We can't say, fetch. We can't make God our personal servant. God, while you're out, would you mind picking up some good health some legal protection, and here's a a list of my enemies that I'd like you to punish. Maybe we're afraid that if Jesus is God, then he's in control, and that he'll act on his own good time, and maybe that's why we're afraid. But in the midst of our fear, Jesus asks, will you have faith? And he's not asking for our faith in miracles or our faith in some theological view or our faith in faith. He's asking that we have faith that he is God, to trust Jesus to be God, to trust Jesus to direct our lives. And so the fact is that in recent years, you and I have had our share of storms. We've been in the emergency rooms. We visited the funeral homes. We sat under the green canopies at the cemetery. And this church, this church has had its storms too. A sudden disturbing revelation, the loss of a beloved brother or sister, fellowship cut off at the pockets. We've seen the boat take on water. And even in the slow developing storms, the ones that take years brewing, the chronic pain, the betrayal, the poor health, the unemployment. And we've seen and we are now witnessing some violent, raging storms, portraits of Jesus in our nation's capital with a bandana and a machine gun on tattoos and next to the American flag. In the midst of all these troubles, where does our faith come from? If Mark is our witness and he claims to be just that, then our faith begins with testimony, listening to the testimony from the 12 for whom Jesus calmed the storm. It comes from the testimony of the woman several years after her painful divorce, saying she would never have developed the confidence to even live if she'd stayed in that threatening and suffocating physically, sexually, and emotionally marriage. Or my friend, and he's the friend of Bill and Donna, they know him, and so do Trace And Holly, a soldier who was blinded by a head wound, blinded by a head wound, the soldier who later credits his affliction for his faith and forcing him to develop other senses to see what few other people can see. It's the testimony of one one another. It's the testimony of our own lives when Jesus has seen us through the storm. Tragedies misfortunes, those storms long brewing, and instead of crumbling, instead of quitting, people discover special meaning in what happened. How? How does that happen? Listen to them. They believe. 
that this is the one who calms the storm in his own time, God Almighty. And now, as I conclude, what I say next will be the most surprising and strangest turn in this sermon. To introduce it, I will mention the novelist Stephen Crane, whom you likely recognize from his novel, The Red Badge of Courage. According to his biographer, Crane lived out events in his imagination long before he experienced them in reality. He wrote about events before they happened to him. For example, his only experience in battle was as a war correspondent after he wrote about the Civil War in his novel, Red Badge of Courage. Only after writing several stories on shipwrecks did he find himself aboard a sinking steamer. And in his novel, The Third Violet, he wrote about courting a society bell, and later he carried out a courtship with a society bell. Life imitating art? Is it that Stephen Crane was living his life backwards, experiencing the future before it happened? Or is it simply this, that he imagined a life and then he lived into it, which is precisely our view of Scripture. We live our, into a world that Scripture imagined for us. How else could we possibly explain, love your enemies? and pray for those who spitefully use you, unless you've already imagined that in your mind. How else do you explain, love your neighbor as yourself, imagined first for us in scripture, and then lived into? That's our view of scripture. We imagine it, and then we live into it. And I say all of that, not that, we're by, not that we are novelists like Stephen Crane, but because this morning, we have rehearsed a story, a story that is waiting to happen to you. In the very near future, you will step into a small boat and you will lift anchor for the middle of the sea. And just when you lose sight of the shore, a violent and unexpected storm will hit with such gale force that you will despair of life itself. And in your fear, fear of the storm, fear of the terrifying presence of Jesus, terrifying because he's not your pet, he's not your servant, but he's God Almighty. In the midst of that fear, God will ask you to have faith, faith that God will answer your prayers, not according to your desires, not according to your perceived needs, but according to his steadfast love. And that's the difficult thing I wanted to say to you. But fortunately, for the story you are about to live into, Mark has given you a script, a script to read, a script to memorize, a script to internalize, and then a script to perform. Words to articulate like these. Yes, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. And in fear and trembling, she touched the hem of his garment, thinking, if I just touch his garment, I'll be healed. Or this, they will know that you are my followers by your love. And even for those of us, if you're like me, who in previous storms have been faithless in previous trials, faithless, 
even to us, Jesus will appear again on the sea. And this is the storm recorded in the sixth chapter of Mark. And with the winds this time howling, and the water again breaking over the bow, we, you and me, straining at the oars, Jesus will walk out to the water and meet us there, and he will say, take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. That's who Jesus is.